Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Freelancing podcast. This week, we'll be talking about minimum viable positioning. On our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hi, everybody. And Kai Davis. Howdy, howdy. And Meg Cumby. Hey, folks. And I'm Ruben Lerner. So if we're going to talk about minimal viable positioning, I think we should start off by defining what is positioning and why is it important? So what is positioning? Why is it important? As I rapidly shuffle through my notes in my mind and through conversations with my buddy, uh, Philip Morgan, who I think of as the Sultan of Specialization and the Prince of Positioning, it really is being known for something unique in the mind of your audience, your target market, your clients, but being you know, positioned as a particular solution to a problem or to help particular people. So when you market your services or you talk with people, it's not like, what the heck do you do? Instead, it's much more specific. Hey, I help apparel stores on Shopify break through to seven figures with SEO. So people are able to easily say, oh, okay, this is who you help and this is how you help them. I think of it kind of succinctly as like the answer to the question, why would I hire you in particular? Yeah, maybe to give like the, the shortest, sweetest form of it I can think of. Um, and then a common thread of it that I see is like the I help, the who and do what statement, like I help X do Y is maybe the most succinct way to think about it. Yeah, exactly that. And just holding a, what, what space do you hold in your, anybody's mind, really? I guess it could be potential clients or people that could refer potential clients to you. Just what, what space are you holding in their mind? And, and I'll, just, I'll just add that when I started consulting, if someone had said that positioning and like niching down was a good thing, I, I would have laughed at them. Um, indeed, in practice, I remember explicitly saying to potential clients and on my website, we will use whatever technology you want to do whatever you want because we, we want to service you and we want to be good to you. And in retrospect, like I can see how I made that mistake and it seems so foolish now. My work has gotten more interesting, satisfying, lucrative, and clients self-select because they know what I do. And instantly, they, they don't have to ask the question, oh, should I even give them a call and waste everyone's time? I think um, to that point, if you go off and you're on your hangout, you're single and you say, I'm a freelancer and you're doing general SEO or general application development, whatever you may be doing, you have a default positioning even if you don't realize it. And what you're really saying, if you have no positioning to your way of thinking, is that you either for the same price as a million other people, you do a slightly better job or you do the same job as a million other people but slightly cheaper. Um, that's how you're positioning yourself. Like if you go on Upwork, you make a profile and you're like, I'm one of however many millions of Java software engineers out there. Then what you're really saying is I'm the person that's going to answer your RFP and I'm going to be slightly cheaper and maybe a little better than the other people. So even if you don't think of having your positioning, that's your default positioning. And uh, I would argue it's not the best one. I think we've all seen online, like plenty of people doing that whole race to the bottom. I can be cheaper and you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it turns out there are a lot of people out there. So if you're trying to be the cheapest or the best Java engineer, you're probably not going to be. And what's going to happen is you're going to be answering uh, RFPs or you're going to be applying for jobs. And it'll feel probably more like a job interview than like really doing a structured sales call. It'll feel more like you're a 
contract staff augmentation than a consultant or somebody who's making a pitch to a client. So, you know, I think in, in that context, if we're talking about minimum viable positioning, it's kind of like, how do you get out of um, that sort of pseudo job interview to get work? And how do you get into having more meaningful sales calls where you've differentiated yourself? Part of it really strikes me as stepping towards, I'll use the phrase expensive problem here, something that's costing an ideal lead or client or whatever money that you're able to help with. And even just having like that as a lens in these conversations or your marketing overall could really help shift it from, you know, I'm one of a million Django engineers to, hey, is your Django 2 app crashing, but you don't know how to fix it so your customers can continue paying you money? I help solve those problems. It makes it so much easier for somebody to say, oh, you, you know, you're a round-shaped hole. I have a round-shaped problem. Let's get together and fix this problem. I think you just hit the nail on the head, which, which is maybe the biggest shift from somebody going from, let's say, the I'm a writer who does anything you need words for, <laughs> if, you know, taking it, or uh, I'm a developer that will work with any technology, to, uh, to having a, a more specific positioning. It's going from I do the thing to I solve the problem. Oh, I like that. I like that presentation of it a ton. There definitely can be like a scenario that freelancers or consultants or Indies get into where the clients are going after, they're just looking for a cog who could, you know, fit into their existing machine. But that often isn't a position of strength to end up in for your business. You don't want to be, you know, a commodity developer or marketer or writer who can be subbed out for another one if something happens. You want to be, you know, a bit of a unique offering. You aren't just anybody. You're Reuben Lerner, Kai Davis, Eric, Meg. It, it helps you better market yourself if you are a bit of a unique offering and not just the same thing cut and dried. How do you then choose a position? Like, like how, out of the universe of possibilities, um, especially if you, and I'm guessing all of you folks are like this too, I'm really interested in lots of things. And the moment that someone said, oh, you should really specialize, I was like, but, but I love doing so many things and that wouldn't be good for my clients and a million other excuses. So how do you even begin the process of choosing how you're going to specialize? Oh, that's a tough question. A lot of people write into me through my website because I talk about these topics a lot. I have a blog that people follow, and that's a common one. Like, how do I choose a niche or however they're putting it? And I think that's one of the hardest things for people to wrap their head around. The advice I usually give is like, I can't look at your resume and give you one. I could maybe look at your resume and give you like 20 ideas for one just based on your work history. But it's really going to be, um, I think what it comes down to is having a lot of conversations with people in the beginning. So if you know a platform or if you engage with a lot of a particular like buyer persona, like maybe you talk to CIOs all the time, whatever it is, and you start having conversations with those people and you listen to them and what patterns, what problems do they have that are coming up over and over again? And of those, what might you be well equipped to help them with? And that's kind of where you start to iterate. Like you're not just going to sit down one day and say, this is my niche. I now help this person do this. Um, you're going to probably do a lot of generalized work and then see patterns. You're going to interview people, see those patterns, and then kind of refine that until you're having sales calls where you say, like, I can help you with this specific problem. And people, you know, yes, I want that. And I think you're kind of iterating toward it that way more than you're picking one. You're kind of like taking a shot in the dark, like firing a tracer bullet and then kind of working your way towards one. Yeah, it's very, very much an iterative process. You, there's no like magical moment where bolt of lightning comes out of the blue and suddenly I shall work with Shopify. It's, it's honestly like for me, similar to what you said, Eric, 
looking at projects I've done in the past, are there any through lines or commonalities or types of companies I want to work with more? Or even, is there an area or an industry or a market that I have some personal interest in? And if that happens, I'll say, okay, like I would love to work with, here's what I'm honestly looking at, gaming supply companies on Shopify, the people who sell you like the D&D minis and dice and all those related fun things. So I'm starting this by saying, okay, I've identified some. Now let's go out, have some conversations, look at them and see if common problems they're running into are things that I am already equipped to solve. So this is very much starting with that market saying, I want to work with these people. And now can I find a spot where I could add value or solve a problem? And that's another pattern to follow to iterate towards a positioning that works. Definitely takes a couple of attempts though, even with the same market, learn a little bit, see if an offering or a problem would work, learn a little more after a couple engagements and refine down to who you really want to be working with as you get more experience. Jonathan Stark, who I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, I think he's made the point about like, if you like to focus on uh, for a target audience, part of your positioning, like it really, as a service provider, it really makes sense to um, start with, or like, you know, to pick some uh, audience that you actually care about. That um, because if you don't like, if you're not invested in in helping them, that like it's it's you, that's just going to add a lot of friction. And uh, it, I, f- I find it works very well, you know, for me if working with people that I actually care about to help them achieve what they want to achieve. You know, if there's a mismatch there, you know, and you don't actually care about helping them, that that could be a problem. Yeah, completely, completely agreed on that point. It makes me think of uh, Patrick McKenzie, Patio Eleven on the internet ran his site Bingo Card Creator for a number of years. And that sort of fell into that anti-pattern you described, Meg, where he picked it. He was like, yeah, of course it'll work out. I like this problem. I will learn to love this audience. And a few years in, he was like, no, that did not work. I have not fallen in love with healthcare data for healthcare-related organizations. So he exited. And I think it was great that he shared that experience so publicly because it acts as a really nice line in the sand to say, okay, this is not how to do it. And this is what he and followers learned through that experience. What, one of my big worries uh, when I started positioning myself more and more, um, and it is definitely an iterative process. Uh, I started sort of doing everything and then I finally came to the conclusion I should do training. I said, well, maybe I'll just do training in Python. And, and when I was thinking about doing that, even just the training, I said, boy, that's going to be really boring. Like, I'm just going to do training all the time. How could that possibly be as, as exciting and fun, let alone have all the opportunities of doing many more things? Um, and I have discovered, and I mean, Philip says this in his book and his everything else, um, you will find that there's sort of infinite depth to whatever you do, and it can be really interesting. I definitely found that to be the case. Um, but it's, it seems counterintuitive. Uh, have you found the same, same things uh, in what you folks do? Yeah, I would say I have. I mean, I don't, I don't do boredom easily, but like, so for the first, I don't know, 10, 12 years of my career, I did various flavors of software engineering while I climbed the org chart. And I was always kind of bouncing around from tech stack to tech stack, problem domain to problem domain. And I think back when I was doing that, it would have been hard for me to picture zeroing in on something. And then I wound up kind of doing exactly that when I went off on my own and, and started to be a business owner. And I never, after doing that, even though I thought I would never enjoy that, uh, I did. Because doing a deeper dive, it's not, um, if you're going around superficially doing uh, a bunch of different things, then you're getting the variety by virtue of, um, you know, endless superficial understandings. It's like, 
if you learned a little bit of like eight different spoken languages. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between that and learning how to like compose poetry in one of those languages. You're not going to get bored. You're still going to be solving different problems all the time. It's just, you know, uh, to borrow from my programming background, are you doing a breath first or depth first search? Uh, you still are encountering different things, different challenges, and I, I promise you it doesn't get boring. Yeah, my evolution overall, I guess, like I definitely started off super generic with will WordPress marketing stuff for money. And it was an iterative process to say, okay, I want to focus a little more on this topic, a little more on this audience, a little more on this market. And that only came from learning as I went forward and discovering, oh, more like this, fewer like that. How do I better hone in or optimize towards the things that spark joy and make the bank account go up? Yeah, I, I think, I don't know if I had a slightly different foray into into my positioning, which was sort of started, like I started off as a uh, more generalist communications specialist writer and uh, started with just this one, I wanted to get a little bit more control of my business. So I started with this one service of like doing testimonials for consultants uh, without the awkwardness. And so I started with like really experimenting with positioning, but just having this one service uh, to one side of my business. And it like, I just slow, like it, I was able to, and it's funny when you think like, yeah, I, I don't know if I was ever worried about getting bored per se, but I think I was worried about whether or not I could turn it into a whole business. Um, but yeah, having that, having that um, small service to start with, to experiment with, and then grow slowly over time and have it take more of my business and ramp down my other work. Um, I've, I've, always, I've enjoyed the journey of, of getting more specialized and, and getting that deeper specialization, expanding on that one service into, you know, multiple services to help consultants and coaches get, you know, social proof without awkwardness. Like it did, and you, you wouldn't think like just something that simple is a deep problem, but there's lots of little nuances that come up all the time. And yeah, it's, it's, an, I think everything, but you're going to keep learning about what, what's working for you by just trying something. I think that might be something that stops people. Megan, I'm sort of curious, like, so how, how did you, how did you come up with this positioning? Like, did someone approach you and you said, oh, this is kind of fun. I should do this more. Or did you come up with it yourself after speaking with enough freelancers that uh, you saw it as a common problem? Yeah, I really wanted to come up with a service. Like I said, I was, I was, I was seeing that I was hitting kind of a, a plateau with uh, subcontracting. So I, I did just start with conversations with people. And I honestly cannot re I remember exactly what the conversation was. I can't remember if I brought up the idea or the other person did about, hey, well, I've, I have trouble getting testimonials. Could you help with that? I don't remember if that was or if I sort of was talking to the person that came up, just came up with the idea. But somehow it came up with, in a conference for um, with some fellow freelancers and consultants. Uh, and uh, what's funny is after that one conversation and it didn't really go anywhere afterwards, I dropped it for a year until I brought up the idea again at, a, at another conference. With uh, So um, yeah, one person's not a data point. I, I, thought, I thought, oh, that's dead. That person wasn't interested. So, <laughs> um, so it just sort of evolved from there. So I started with two, two fellow attendees uh, as a sort of beta testing of the service. And then it just... I just started talking about it more and, and put my shingle out on the window. And even though I was still doing, I was still keeping my old clients that were wonderful and help, you know, but it just, I was trying this out for new clients and um, 
yeah, just over time, just started to build a little bit more very slowly. It took about three years before I, I almost three years before I flipped the switch, I think completely two and a half or so years before I flipped the switch and said, okay, now I'm just doing testimonials and case studies. So something in, in what you said there strikes me as important, which is um, I was doing this generalist practice and then I kind of peeled off and decided to do this one kind of offering, you know, uh, and, and for someone listening out there, if you are generalized and you don't really have any positioning, it's not all or nothing. Like you can do exactly that. You can go and say, you know, what, I'm going to try out this one thing. I'm going to put it on my site. I'm going to mention it to people when I talk to them and I'm going to see how that goes. So you can kind of dip your toe in the water that way and see if it gains traction, I think is probably actually how a lot of people wind up uh, iterating towards their eventual positioning rather than sitting down and saying like, all right, I'm going to go from being a generalist to having this like one specific thing that I do and gosh, I hope this works. Um, so I, I think that's important for anyone listening to, to make note of. You don't even have to change your website copy right away. <laughs> I think I think it was six months, eight months before I changed copy to, to match what I was doing. Um, something like that. Maybe six months. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I decided for a while that I was going to just do training, even though I was mostly doing that. And so I think that I, it was easily over the space of a year that I changed my website only to mention that because I really wasn't getting that many leads through my website anyway. So this way I could just sort of change that branding and I changed what I had on LinkedIn and little by little when people would ask me what I was doing, I wouldn't say, oh, I do X and Y and Z. I would just say, I do training. And that also helped me to build confidence that, oh, I can describe this in a really succinct sentence and people get it. And if people get what you're doing that quickly, that's also a good sign that your potential customers will know how to identify you and, and gravitate toward you. And so when I finally did flip the switch and, and get rid of all the project stuff and consulting stuff and just talk about training and Python training especially, um, it, it was really a very liberating sort of moment that I felt like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And what do you know? People really need this particular expertise. Um, and sure enough, like since then, it's, it's, you know, it's gone pretty well. Touching on something you brought up there and connecting to the earlier idea of like, how do you transition in if you're already known for one thing or your site already says like, hey, I do X. There's, at least for me, a moment of both fear and calm that comes from making a step forward like that. Fear from, oh gosh, if I step away from being a generalist, even just a tiny bit, what if the big generalist project comes through and I'm not there to catch it? Compared with that freedom of like, oh gosh, I don't need to be preparing myself for anything by anybody at any time. Instead, this is the best way I work with people. Yeah, I could do other things too, but this is sort of the pointy tip of the spear. This is where you really want to start working with me. Makes it easier and a little more emotionally free. Along those lines, one of the things that I think if you've never, if you've never made um, an attempt to really kind of position yourself, if you accept what I thought of as the default positioning, which is I'm either better for the price or I'm cheaper for the same level of skill or whatever. If that's your positioning, your sales calls probably kind of suck. They're probably you being interviewed and you not really having good answers to questions. But if you position yourself, um, like I think of our business, hit subscribe. And when I'm doing sales calls, um, those are pretty easy because they're just, it, it's a blue ocean space. There aren't really people doing what we're doing. So if there's, you know, uh, why should I hire you? It's kind of like, well, I mean, what else would you do if, if you want this? Uh, there's just not a ton of options. You could, um, instead of hiring us to supply you with all this content, I guess you could go manage a firm of freelancers. Uh, you could incur a lot of effort. You could have a part-time job. 
But if you don't want that to be your job, then you should hire us. There's just not much else out there. So if you position yourself, you're going to have these sales calls that are easy to ace. Like if you're, um, you know, the only person that does SEO or something in a very small geographical area, then if you're going in and you're talking, well, hopefully right now you're not going into these places, but if you're talking to them and they say, why should I hire you? Well, um, you're looking for somebody who's a real expert in the small area that we both live in, right? Um, that's me. Nobody else you're going to find on Upwork has that going. So there is that, um, you know, the moment of calm, Kai, that you mentioned where I feel calm before sales conversations because if I'm talking to the right person, there's nothing, there's no real convincing to be done. It's just, are you ready to spend the money or not? Or, you know, do you like the cut of my jib? It's not, tell me why I should hire you instead of these 50 other similar people that responded to me, to which I wouldn't have a good answer if, if I were just saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm better, I guess. Um, so that kind of calm uh, comes from having good sales conversations. And as you do that, as you're focused, building up credible expertise. So you're probably writing about this topic, maybe giving talks about it. And it's so much more narrow that you're not just the only one, but you easily enough become the expert in it because you're the only one or close to the only one doing it and you get really good at it. So I think of those sales calls, it becomes easier when you get in front of the right person by far to win business and to dictate kind of the terms of the arrangement. You're not just hoping for the business and doing, they say, well, you know, you do content creation. So if I were just a content writer, they'd say like, we need it in this form and we do it in this way and we prepare the briefs in this fashion. Like on a sales call, I would say, no, that's not how it works. Here's how we work and you take it or leave it. So I think the positioning makes your pre-sales and your sales uh, way easier, even though you have this fear like, oh, I might be um, precluding myself from some business. I didn't catch it until now, but what you just shared there, Eric, made me realize whenever I've made my positioning a little more crispy or targeted, sales conversation shifted from exactly as you put it, like, tell me what you do to, okay, let me tell you about my problem. Since they already knew sort of what I'd be able to help with the shape of the problem. And there was no like, okay, do the song and dance so we could see what you're good at. Okay, then we'll have a conversation, which makes it so much easier as that indie consultant on this side of the line. I very often probably like, I don't know, twice a month have conversations with companies that want to do training of some sort. And it's typically the training manager bringing in between one and three different group heads, leads, tech heads, whatever it's going to be, to tell me all about what their needs are and, and to make sure that I can really supply it. And these are such easy conversations to have because first of all, they want to hear themselves talk, right? They want to tell me all about what's special about them. And then I say, oh, well, I have XYZ course that will solve your problem. They're like, yes, that is exactly what we're looking for. Now we could have avoided the whole hour long conversation, but I can't tell them that. Um, I hope they're not listening to the podcast and it does, you know, improve our relationship. And, um, you know, they then, you know, we're, we're on the same page. But it's not even, no one's asking, can you do this? It's let's make sure it's the right fit. Or let's make sure that what I'm offering really, really solves their problem exactly. And here or there, there, there are sometimes some changes necessary. But it makes me more confident, yes, what they're looking for is what dozens of other companies have been looking for before. And I can definitely provide it. So I guess maybe the million dollar question is, what do we think of as minimum viable positioning? I mean, I guess in a sense, you could hang out your shingle and just take what I was calling the default positioning, but like 
if you were going to, if a listener were going to get serious about positioning, like what are some basics that they should have in order to say, like, I have an actual piece of thought through positioning. I'm just curious about people's take on that. It's, it's a hard question since it's sort of like, how long is a piece of string? Well, you got to measure it first. Do I have minimal positioning? Well, do you have the default position? Do you at least have some positioning? You're kind of there. In my mind, to sort of take it a step further, it's a combination of both the market and the niche. Maybe problem gets mixed into a tiny bit, but we could leave it aside for the truly minimal. And that might look like a market of Shopify e-commerce stores. And it's wide, but you know it's not including WooCommerce or eBay or these other ones. So it is starting to get there. But when we mix in a niche, it becomes so much easier for us to understand who we're going after. So that might be women's apparel or, you know, gaming products or Magic the Gathering cards. And it's easy for us to say, okay, is this a good client or is this a good marketing opportunity? Well, does it lead me closer to better understanding my market and my niche or does it put me in contact with people there? If it does, I think of that as sort of a good minimal viable positioning. If it doesn't, it's a strong sign that it might be either the default positioning or you might not quite yet know who your market is or what niche to go after. So you almost want to start a search process a little further up and say, okay, what are the niches here? But in my mind, really comes down to both having that uh, uh, target market and having a niche within that market you're going after. I've kind of thought historically of the who and do what, like I help who do what. So that might be an indicator that if you can articulate that, because if you roll back to the initial, um, the, the default positioning is just a generalist freelancer. It's kind of like I help anyone do anything with software engineering or I help anyone write anything. And if you say something like that, it kind of will sound hollow to your own ears. Like I help anyone do anything. Um, if it's on the other hand, like I help companies like this or I help, you know, CTOs or whoever, if you pick that and then you say what you're helping them do, that sort of at least forces you into being able um to have a conversation where you trigger someone to know whether you're probably a good fit for their problem or not. I don't think unless you can articulate whether you could strategically help someone with a problem that you've really got any uh, clear concept of positioning. So I think of that as a minimum uh, viable positioning potentially. Although I think uh, Jonathan Stark, who we could do as a pick with this, his laser focused positioning statement then adds, what is it like uh, and unlike my competitors, I X. So that's maybe even clarifying it a little more. But I think that's what you want to be able to articulate. I help these people, I help them do this, and I have a differentiator of some kind. And once you've got that, even if it's not perfect, even if you don't have sales or a lot of success yet, you've got something um, that you can iterate on or grow with. Yeah, I'd say even the differentiator can wait for a later later iteration i'd say i didn't start with a differentiator per se um i don't think there there's more people that kind of touch on the thing i do now um so you know that's something to to like i've got you know differentiators now but it's not something i don't think people have to get too caught up on i think too like not worrying too much about filling like full blanks like you know but like if you can and, and i think people get hung up too on the industry idea but even if you can if you can articulate some guardrails around who you work with. It does not have to be a particular industry, like, you know, dentist is used a lot as, a, as an example or Shopify store. Like, but if you can put some guardrails, pre-funding uh, tech startups, you know, something, uh, you know, uh, businesses that serve the wedding industry, something 
that puts around consultants, coaches, you know, something that puts something around it. Maybe it's not a specific industry, but help web developers. I don't know. Like, you know, that's an industry thing, but like it does not have to necessarily be one particular industry, but just something that defines it that excludes other people, I think would be the minimum. You hit the nail on the head there. I think the one important point to share with listeners is really the true value in positioning is excluding folks. And it always makes me think of Gerald Weinberg's The Law of Raspberry Jam. And I think of this in the marketing context, the wider you spread it, the thinner it gets. So if you're marketing to everybody for every problem, it's not going to be that deep, not going to be a lot of jam on that toast. But as you refine your positioning and say, okay, this is my market, this is my niche, my specialization, my expensive problem, how I'm unlike other people, all of these factors really just shrink it down until you're like, okay, my ideal clients, there might only be 50 companies in the world or in the States that match up with this, but they know who I am. I know who they are. I know the problems they're experiencing. And so really the positioning exercise just helps you crystallize an idea of who you want to be marketing to. And as you're able to make it more focused and more niche, you'll be more effective with your marketing. I think one of the biggest things there too is actually talking to the people that you're going to try to serve. <laughs> like, and hopefully, like, you know, I think a lot of people, the logical step is to look at who you've served in the past and, you know, who, who you've enjoyed serving in the past. But I think I came up with these very wordy statements <laughs> and these, and um, when I was trying, like I was trying to do it on my own, like, you know, with a scratch pad and, and I, 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 I hope I've saved them somewhere because it was far from what I <laughs> ended up with. It wasn't until I ended up in a bit of a, a, a discussion with, I think, like four or five other freelancers and the word awkwardness just kept coming up like, oh, how do I do the testimonies? It's so awkward. I don't like it. You know, I'm like, oh, there, there we go. Like it only came up, awkwardness only came up about 10 times in the conversation. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem to be focusing on. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I associate with... Uh asking for testimonials. <laughs> I mean, what, one of the advantages of having a tight position is not, not just in terms of your specialization, but the market you serve is that you start to use the same language as your clients. And they like that. They really like the fact that you're getting it and you're using the same words as they do, even if the meaning would be roughly the same using other words. And so paying attention to what they say and using that language and reflecting it back to them, um, it, it just works to your benefit. And so you don't have to position inside of one particular industry, but it helps. It's like one sort of one part to this whole thing. I mean, when, when I was in graduate school, I noticed that everyone does their PhD thesis on something like a hobby of theirs, an interest of theirs, something they grew up with. And I, at first I thought this was like a cop-out. And then I realized, no, people work well with the sorts of things that they're used to and they enjoy and you want to spend time in. So I don't think there's any shame at all in saying I enjoy working with such and such type of people or in such and such type of technology or such an industry starting there talking to people in that industry, seeing if there's a need. And if there is, fantastic. Now you're able to work in something that you're good at and you enjoy with people you get along with and whose language you speak. And if you have to adjust that and tweak that, that's normal. Um, Jonathan Stark did this, uh, we keep mentioning him. He's a good source for information about this stuff. But I think it was about two, three years ago, he said, I am going to start niching down and talking to credit unions and helping them with their technology problems. He spent a ton of time talking to them and discovered, yes, he could help them. And yes, he spoke their language. And no, they're just not a good client audience. So like, 
all all the ingredients need to be there, and speaking to them is the only way you're gonna you're gonna really verify that it's it's a good one for you. One thing I think that's worth mentioning as kind of a caveat or a thing to be aware of, and I say this coming from the world of software engineering where it's going to be particularly appropriate, is when you're thinking about who you're helping and how, and you're thinking about speaking their language, it's important to differentiate between who might be at that company and who your economic buyer might be. And the reason I say this is I hear all you software engineers out there thinking that maybe I'm going to zoom in and I'm going to say that like, uh, I really help in my positioning is I'm really niched down on helping people with like the uh, JDBC MySQL driver or something. Um, but then the person who's actually going to buy your custom app development is a CIO or someone who does not care about that at all, doesn't speak about that at all, won't even know when to hire you. So that's this subtly mismatched positioning where you're going with something where the company might care and it may be what you actually do in the nuts and bolts sense of it but your actual buyer, the person you're going to have a sales conversation with, just wouldn't care. So you need to make sure that whoever that buyer is uh, at the companies you're talking about in your positioning, that you're teeing up a way of helping them that they understand and that you can articulate to them. Yeah, and knowing that, knowing how to best tee it up often comes out of market research conversations with those types of people, other people in the market, just to understand, oh, you know, the CIOs right now, they're really focused on cutting costs because point to economy. And well, okay, if you come in saying, hey, it's a driver thing, whatever, we're going to make it cost less to do X, Y, Z. It's going to be so much more resonant with them and they'll want to move forward with it because you're speaking their language. Yeah, and as a consultant, you're often dealing not with, especially if you're in like the tech sector, you're not dealing with the engineers. Um, they're not going to be paying the bills. You're dealing with the CEO, CIO, CFO, someone like that. And so speaking the language of, I will help you either make more money or save money. That's what they want to hear. And then you can, see, you can say you're going to implement in COBOL. They couldn't care less as long as they're going to save money or make more money or preferably both. So for listeners in the audience who are wondering, okay, what, what are one or two steps I could take today or this week to move towards a slightly crispier or a better positioning, what would we each recommend they consider or they do? I would say try to schedule some exploratory conversations. Um, one of the most valuable things that I've done over the years um, was just to pick the brains of people who I thought might be buyers. Um, so to put this more concretely, the way I went from IT management and strategy consulting to, of all things, founding a content marketing business is while I was doing that consulting, uh, I would write for tech blogs because it was fun. And the more of them I did that, the more of them uh, called me up or, or emailed me and said, hey, I saw you writing for this company. Would you also write for us? After like five or six of those, uh, uh, my wife and I said, hey, maybe there's a business here that'll get me off the road away from 100% management consulting and kind of the rest is history. But in the early going there, I scheduled conversations with all those people who had been writing and I started to ask, you know, why me? Why, why pay me or why would you pay us to do this? What sorts of things do you value? Those conversations were just incredibly important. Um, so I would say if you have a bunch of engagements kind of behind you or maybe it's just former employers, whatever it is, call those people up and start to ask them, you know, what did you – what did you find particularly good about me as an employee or as a freelancer? What did you really value? Why did you want this project done in the first place? And people are pretty receptive to those conversations because you're not really trying to sell them anything. You're picking their brain and people like to be interviewed and people you know, like to offer expertise. So my vote would be schedule as many conversations like that as your, as your calendar allows for 
and start to learn from people what it is they valued about your past work. And I think starting with the people that you've got a relationship with of some sort of, even when I say relationship, it doesn't have to be a deep one, but I think, um, sometimes some people, and I know when I was start, started, like the, the idea of cold emailing um, someone to ask about for a 15 minute conversation, ask about, do you experience X problem? Um, that's a huge barrier to try to get over. And, and I, 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 I did, I haven't done it as a, as a, as a practice and it's not something I'm comfortable with. But um, if you start with people, you've got some kind of relationship with like, are you're in a business community, you're in a, you know, something, uh, you know, any kind of excuse that you've got that, that connects you already, it'll make it easier to, to have those conversations. Yeah, past conversations okay. with folks, market research conversations is my go-to recommendation as well. It, you learn so much just by sitting down for a half dozen 20-minute conversations with people in a market who have purchased a similar service or you know are somewhat adjacent to it, just learning what they have to share. One atypical outcome of experience from market research conversations is people saying, can I pay you to solve this thing that I didn't realize was a hair on fire problem until we had this conversation? Again, not a standard outcome, but a lucky roll of the die and sometimes those market research conversations or just one turns into a paying project within a positioning you're evaluating. Um, a metric that I've heard, I can't remember who has talked about it, is um, maybe it was Philip or Jonathan, is, is there a conference or are there conferences for a particular um, industry? And if so, that means there are enough people probably for you to target it in your positioning. Um, and so you can say, well, I know that there are conferences for you know, X, so let me try contacting people I know in the X industry, see if they'd be interested in my services, or more importantly, what problems do they have that I might be able to solve? Um, and again, you might discover that it's a dead end, but you gotta have the conversations first. And, and I mean, I found this, you folks have found this, like you're gonna hear the same words repeated and then you can just use those and people will light up, oh, you get it, you get the problems we have. Um, now, and, and then, and then once, they, once they understand that you sort of get them or once they believe you get them, they're gonna open up and tell you about all sorts of problems they have, which will then feed on itself and give you more information and so on and so on and so on. So, it's not a matter, this is, uh, I mean, several of you used the, the term iterative before. This is a hugely, hugely iterative process, and it doesn't necessarily need to stop. Uh, I mean, every single time I teach a course, I go around the room and have everyone introduce themselves, and I ask, why are you here? And I you know, jokingly say, is it because your manager forced you to be here? And everyone giggles a little bit. But this is not like idle time. I will not remember their names. I might remember some of the other languages they've learned and so I can key into that. But the most important part of that is why are they here so that I can then see the patterns among my students and I have used that. That's why I started teaching data science. That's why I started teaching for non-programmers because a whole lot of people mentioned that in those introductory comments. And then when I came back to companies and said, I think you might have a need here, they were like, how did you know? Because <laughs> I've been using your own employees against you. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah it's both a simple step to take just having the conversations with people and feels like you're allowed to do that i could email somebody on linkedin and say oh you work in this industry can i buy you a coffee and ask you you know half a dozen questions it's true it works and like 60 percent of folks will respond and say sure let's do it because again people like talking about themselves people like sharing what they've experienced Honestly, any regrets maybe about any of the positioning that you folks have done 
I have shifted my positioning too often in a haphazard way where I was committed to like, all my content should be on KaiDavis.com. So when I switch, I guess I should just erase all the other things. And now a couple of years after the fact, I'm seeing it as like, oh no, the smart or wise thing here is have just a separate domain or a separate landing page for the different areas. And in practice, like as my positioning evolves, that might look like telling folks, oh, you could find me for the next six months over here at this URL. And that's where I'm just creating the content around a market or a pain or just my positioning. So make sure that you are keeping that old data or that old information or old content around when you do change your positioning. Since a year or three later, you might realize, oh, I'm heading back in that direction. Let's get it out of storage. Honestly, this might sound a little like, you know, episode thematic or whatever is an answer, but the only regret I can really think of was not going from too general to more specific sooner that I would over the course of time, I would get more specific and then realize like, oh, this, this makes things so much easier. I, I really wish I had done this earlier in the game. Um, if I'm being perfectly honest, that's the only real thing I can think of. I've never gotten more specific and thought like, this is too specific. I need to zoom back out. And even if that happened, um, that, you know, I don't think it's hard to get a little bit more general. So, I mean, my final takeaway would be, you know, at least try it, at least have the conversations, at least consider it and maybe spin up a landing page on your site or something with it just to run the experiment. Even if you're not going all in for it, just do the exercise. I'd say possibly dropping, pursuing positioning uh, for me for, as a regret and not, not having more conversations earlier. Um, I mean, there's a whole year of time that I, I could have been <laughs> pursuing and, and, and moved myself. I mean, um, yeah, I'd say just, doing that earlier, even if I'd spent that whole year just gathering data, that would have been, that would have been valuable to do. Um, uh, that would be probably my only regret that I could think of. I, I don't regret moving sl as slowly as I did. Um, I think that that gave me confidence that like, this is working, this is working. Okay, let's just slowly build that up and not throw out everything else until I'm confident that uh, more and more like to be able to ramp up that side more and more. So uh, I definitely wouldn't regret moving that slowly, but I do re regret not moving on the idea sooner. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just going to echo what you folks have said, which is I should have done it way sooner. Um, but um, And I guess I was surprised that the more I specialized, again, the happier I was, the more work I had, the clearer I, I, I was as a target for my potential customers and vice versa. Um, so... And it does. It does. It it does not feel right at first. It feels like no. I'm putting, you know, leaving money on the table. I'm saying no to all these people. How could I possibly do that? Um, but try it. Try it. You will. You will benefit. Um, with that, let's uh, let's move into picks. Uh, Eric, what do you have for us this, us this week? Well, I think once again, I'll um, I'll go with something I just mentioned offhand. Um, in the episode, which is Jonathan Stark's laser-focused positioning statement, he has a whole exercise around that. I can you know, find the link, but it's kind of like, you know, how do you get to a piece of positioning? Um, so it's worth checking out, and, and he in general puts out a lot of good information on this topic. Excellent. Uh, Meg, what you got? Uh, yeah, I don't have a business-focused one this week, but I will say um, 
uh, I'll go with an app called Calm for building a meditation habit, which is very important. <laughs> I found is very important and links to my business life. Uh, that it helps just sort of uh, uh, building a meditation habit's been really helpful with building mindfulness with what I'm working on. And uh, so Calm makes it, it, it's a paid app. Yes, you could find free um, meditations online, I'm sure, but uh, this guided meditations, but this one just makes it so easy to build the habit. A lot of them are 10 minutes or, or less, so it, it's really tiny, or sometimes, yeah, two or three minutes, uh, and it's got a lovely tracker and reminders, and it's just got everything. Uh, I gladly pay, I suppose, $80 Canadian, something less than American. <laughs> But uh, gladly play that each year for for uh, the app. That's yeah. It's 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 one of the few ones that I I know I'll keep keep on using for a long time to come. So uh, excellent, uh, Kai. How about you? I got a couple of picks, and you'll find these in show notes. Uh, two episodes of my now retired podcast with Nick DeSabato, Make Money Online. Uh, episode eighteen. What's your favorite positioning? And episode ninety-seven. Positioning. How specialized should you be? If you're listening to this podcast and enjoy listening to podcasts, I recommend checking those episodes out. And the uh, other resource I'll suggest, echo a suggestion for, honestly, the Positioning Manual by Philip Morgan. It'll also be in show notes and it truly is worth the money. It will help your business be at an indie consultant or a software developer or something else. Better understand how to position yourself. Strong recommendation. Absolutely. And uh, my pick for this week is Podia. Uh, I've been selling with them online for, I guess, about two and a half years now. And I am so, so happy that I've made the switch. I tried a few other, few other platforms, few other sites, and uh, not only have they made it really easy for me to sell uh, courses and videos and content, they're now doing webinars, and uh, they're constantly adding new functionality. Their service is amazing, easy to work with, even if you're not a techie. So uh, a very strong recommendation for, for at least trying them out if you want to sell things online. And you should, but we'll talk about that in another episode, I guess. And that about wraps it up for us. Uh, Eric, Kai, and Meg, thanks so much. Thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you have suggestions, ideas, thoughts, or future topics, please let us know. We would be delighted to hear from you. And we will see you next week on the Business of Freelancing Podcast.